Stand By For Places presents The Importance Of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde, Act the Second. Garden at the manor house. A flight of grey stone steps leads up to the house. The garden, an old-fashioned one, full of roses. Time of year, July. Basket chairs and a table covered with books are set under a large yew tree. Miss Prism is seated at the table, surrounded by books, as Cecily waters the flowers. Cecily! Cecily, such a utilitarian occupation as the watering of flowers is rather Moulton's duty than yours, especially at a moment where intellectual pleasures await you. Your German grammar is on the table. Pray open it at page 15. We will repeat yesterday's lesson. But I don't like German. It isn't at all a becoming language. I know perfectly well that I look quite plain after my German lesson. Child, you know how anxious your guardian is that you should improve yourself in every way. He laid particular stress on your German as he was leaving for town yesterday. Indeed, he always lays stress on your German when he is leaving for town. Dear Uncle Jack is so very serious. Sometimes he is so serious that I think he cannot be quite well. Your guardian enjoys the best of health, and his gravity of demeanour is especially to be commended in one so comparatively young as he is. I know no one who has a higher sense of duty and responsibility. I suppose that is why he often looks a little bored when we three are together. Cecily, I am surprised at you. Mr. Worthing has many troubles in his life. Idle merriment and triviality would be out of place in his conversation. You must remember his constant anxiety about that unfortunate young man, his brother. I wish Uncle Jack would allow that unfortunate young man, his brother, to come down here sometimes. We might have a good influence over him, Miss Prism. I am sure you certainly would. You know German and geology and things of that kind influence a man very much. I do not think that even I could produce any effect on a character that, according to his own brother's admission, is irretrievably weak and vacillating. Indeed, I am not sure that I would desire to reclaim him. I am not in favour of this modern mania for turning bad people into good people at a moment's notice. As a man sows, so shall let him reap. You must put away your diary, Cecily. I really don't see why you should keep a diary at all. I keep a diary in order to enter the wonderful secrets of my life. If I didn't write them down, I should probably forget all about them. Memory, my dear Cecily, is the diary that we all carry about with us. Yes, but it usually chronicles the things that have never happened and couldn't possibly have happened. I believe that memory is responsible for nearly all the three-volume novels that Moody sends us. Do not speak slightingly of the three-volume novel, Cecily. I wrote one myself in earlier days. Did you really, Miss Prism? How wonderfully clever you are. I hope it did not end happily. I don't like novels that end happily. They depress me so much. The good ended happily, and the bad unhappily. That is what fiction means. I suppose so. But it seems very unfair. And was your novel ever published? Alas, no. The manuscript, unfortunately, was abandoned. I use the word in the sense of lost or mislaid. To your work, child. These speculations are profitless. But I see dear Dr. Chasuble coming up through the garden. Dr. Chasuble, this is indeed a pleasure. And how are we this morning? Miss Prism, you are, I trust, well. 
Miss Prism has just been complaining of a slight headache. I think it would do her so much good to have a short stroll with you in the park, Dr. Chasuble. Cecily, I have not mentioned anything about a headache. No, dear Miss Prism, I know that. But I felt it instinctively that you had a headache. Indeed, I was thinking about that and not about my German lesson when the rector came in. I hope, Cecily, you are not inattentive. Oh, I'm afraid I am. It's strange. Were I fortunate enough to be Miss Prism's pupil, I would hang upon her lip. I spoke metaphorically. My metaphor was drawn from bees. <clears throat> Mr. Worthing, I suppose, has not returned from town yet. We do not expect him till Monday afternoon. Ah, yes, he usually likes to spend his Sunday in London. He is not one of those whose sole aim is enjoyment, as by all accounts that unfortunate young man, his brother, seems to be. But I must not disturb Egeria and her pupil any longer. Egeria? Uh, my name is Letitia, Doctor. A classical illusion, merely, drawn from the pagan author. I shall see you both, no doubt, at Evensong. I think, dear Doctor, I will have a stroll with you. I find I have a headache, after all, and a walk might do it good. Pleasure, Miss Prism, with pleasure. We might go as far as the schools and back. That would be delightful. Cecily, you will read your political economy in my absence. The chapter on the fall of the rupee you may omit. It is somewhat too sensational. Even these metallic problems have their melodramatic side. Horrid political economy, horrid geography, horrid, horrid German. Mr. Ernest Worthing has just driven from the station. He has brought his luggage with him. Mr. Ernest Worthing, B4, the Albany West. Uncle Jack's brother. Did you tell him Mr. Worthing was in town? Yes, Miss. He seemed very much disappointed. I mentioned that you and Miss Prism were in the garden. He said he was anxious to speak to you privately for a moment. Ask Mr. Ernest Worthing to come here. I suppose you had better talk to the housekeeper about a room for him. Yes, Miss. I have never met any really wicked person before. I feel rather frightened. I'm so afraid he will look like everyone else. He does. You are my little cousin Cecily, I'm sure. You are under some strange mistake. I'm not little. In fact, I believe I am more than usually tall for my age. But I am your cousin Cecily. You, I see from your card, are Uncle Jack's brother, my cousin Ernest. My wicked cousin Ernest. Oh, I am not really wicked at all, cousin Cecily. You mustn't think that I am wicked. If you are not, then you have certainly been deceiving us all in a very inexcusable manner. I hope you have not been leading a double life, pretending to be wicked and being really good all the time. That would be hypocrisy. Of course, I have been rather reckless. I am glad to hear it. In fact, now that you mention the subject, I have been very bad in my own very small way. I don't think you should be so proud of that, though I am sure it must have been very pleasant. It is much pleasanter being here with you. I can't understand how you are here at all. Uncle Jack won't be back till Monday afternoon. 
That is a great disappointment. I'm obliged to go up by the first train on Monday morning. I have a business appointment that I am anxious to miss. Couldn't you miss it anywhere but in London? No, uh, the appointment is in London. Well, I know, of course, how important it is not to keep a business engagement if one wants to retain any sense of the beauty of life. But still, I think you had better wait till Uncle Jack arrives. I know he wants to speak to you about your emigrating. About my what? Your emigrating. He has gone up to buy your outfit. I certainly wouldn't let Jack buy my outfit. He has no taste in neckties at all. I don't think you will require neckties. Uncle Jack is sending you to Australia. Australia? I'd sooner die. Well, he said at dinner on Wednesday night that you would have to choose between this world, the next world, and Australia. Oh, well, uh, the accounts I have received of Australia and the next world are not particularly encouraging. This world is good enough for me, Cousin Cecily. Yes, but are you good enough for it? I'm afraid I am not that. That is why I want you to reform me. You might make it your mission, if you don't mind, Cousin Cecily. I'm afraid I have no time this afternoon. Well, would you mind my reforming myself this afternoon? It is rather quixotic of you, but I think you should try. I will. Oh, I feel better already. You are looking a little worse. Oh, that's because I am hungry. How thoughtless of me. I should have remembered that when one is going to lead an entirely new life, one requires regular and wholesome meals. Won't you come in? Thank you. Might I have a buttonhole first? I never have an appetite unless I have a buttonhole first. A marchignol? Uh, no, I'd sooner have a pink rose. Why? Because you are like a pink rose, Cousin Cecily. I don't think it can be right for you to talk to me like that. Miss Prism never says such things to me. Then Miss Prism is a short-sighted old lady. You are the prettiest girl I have ever seen. Miss Prism says that all good looks are a snare. They are a snare that every sensible man would like to be caught in. Oh, I don't think I would care to catch a sensible man. I shouldn't know what to talk to him about. You are too much alone, dear Dr. Chasuble. You should get married. A misanthrope, I can understand. A womanthrope, never. Oh, believe me, I do not deserve so neologistic a phrase. Precept, as well as the practice of primitive church, was distinctly against matrimony. That is obviously the reason why the primitive church has not lasted up to the present day. And you do not seem to realize, dear Doctor, that by persistently remaining single, a man converts himself into a permanent, public temptation. Men should be more careful. This very celibacy leads weaker vessels astray. Is a man not equally attractive when married? No married man is ever attractive except to his wife. And often, I've been told, not even to her. That depends on the intellectual sympathies of the woman. Maturity can always be depended on. Ripeness can be trusted. Young women are green. I spoke horticulturally. My metaphor was drawn from fruits. But where is Cecily? Perhaps she followed us to the school. Mr. Worthing. Mr. Worthing? 
This is indeed a surprise. We did not look for you till Monday afternoon. I have returned sooner than I expected. Dr. Chasuble, I hope you are well. Dear Mr. Worthing, I trust this garb of woe does not betoken some terrible calamity. My brother. More shameful debts and extravagance. Still leading his life of pleasure. Dead. Your brother Ernest, dead. Quite dead. What a lesson for him. I trust he will profit by it. Mr. Worthing, I offer you my sincere condolence. You have at least the consolation of knowing that you were always the most generous and forgiving of brothers. Poor Ernest. He had many faults, but it is a sad, sad blow. Very sad indeed. Were you with him at the end? No. He died abroad. In Paris, in fact. I had a telegram last night from the manager of the Grand Hotel. What was the cause of death mentioned? A severe chill, it seems. As a man sows, so shall he reap. Charity, dear Miss Prison, charity. None of us are perfect. I myself am peculiarly susceptible to draughts. Will the interment take place here? No. He seems to have expressed a desire to be buried in Paris. Paris. I fear that hardly points to any very serious state of mind at the last. You would no doubt wish me to make some slight allusion to this tragic domestic affliction next Sunday. My sermon on the meaning of mana in the wilderness can be adapted to almost any occasion, joyful or, as in the present case, distressing. I have preached it at harvest celebrations, christenings, confirmations, on days of humiliation and festival days. The last time I delivered it was in the cathedral, as a charity sermon on behalf of the Society for the Prevention of Discontent among the Upper Order. Bishop, who was present, but struck by some of the analogies I drew. Ah, that reminds me. You mentioned christenings, I think, Dr. Chasuble. I suppose you know how to christen, all right? I mean, of course you are continually christening, aren't you? It is, I regret to say, one of the rector's most constant duties in this parish. I have often spoken to the poorer classes on the subject, but they don't seem to know what thrift is. But is there any particular infant in whom you're interested, Mr. Worthing? Your brother was, I believe, unmarried, was he not? Oh, yes. People who live entirely for pleasure usually are. But it is not for any child, dear doctor. I'm very fond of children. No, no, the fact is, I would like to be christened myself this afternoon. If you have nothing better to do. But surely, Mr. Worthing, you have been christened already. I don't remember anything about it. But have you any grave doubts on the subject? I certainly intend to have. Of course, I don't know if the thing would bother you in any way, or if you think I'm a little too old. Not at all. The sprinkling, and indeed the immersion of adults, is a perfectly canonical process. You need have no apprehensions. Sprinkling is all that is necessary, or indeed, I think, advisable. Our weather is so changeable. At what hour would you wish the ceremony performed? Oh, I might trot around about five, if that would suit you. Perfect, perfectly. In fact, I have two similar ceremonies to perform at that time. A case of twins that occurred recently in one of the outlying cottages on your own estate. Lord Jenkins the Carter, a most hard-working man. Oh, I don't see much fun in being christened along with other babies. It would be childish. Would half past five do? Admirably, admirably. And now, dear Mr. Worthing, I will not intrude any longer into a house of sorrow. 
I would merely beg you not to be too much bowed down by grief. It seems to us bitter trials are often blessings in disguise. This seems to me a blessing of an extremely obvious kind. Uncle Jack! Oh, I'm so pleased to see you back. But what horrid clothes you've got on, do go and change them. Cecily! My child, my child. What is the matter, Uncle Jack? Do you look happy? You look as though you've had a toothache. And I've got such a surprise for you. Who do you think is in the dining room? Your brother. Who? Your brother, Ernest. He arrived about half an hour ago. What nonsense. I haven't got a brother. Oh, don't say that. However badly he may have behaved to you in the past, he is still your brother. You couldn't be so heartless as to disown him. I'll tell him to come out, and you will shake hands with him, won't you, Uncle Jack? These are very joyful tidings. Oh, after we had all been resigned to his loss, his sudden return seems to me particularly distressing. My brother is in the dining room. I don't know what it all means. I think it is perfectly absurd. Hello, all. Good heavens. Brother John, I have come down from town to tell you that I am very sorry for all the trouble I have given you, and that I intend to lead a better life in the future. Uncle Jack, you are not going to refuse your own brother's hand. Nothing will induce me to take his hand. I think his coming down here disgraceful. He knows perfectly well why. Uncle Jack, do be nice. There is some good in everyone. Ernest has just been telling me about his poor invalid friend, Mr. Bunbury, whom he goes to visit so often. And surely there must be much good in one who is kind to an invalid and leaves the pleasures of London to sit by a bed of pain. Oh, he has been talking about Bunbury, has he? Yes, he has told me all about poor Mr. Bunbury and his terrible state of health. Bunbury. Well, I won't have him talk to you about Bunbury or about anything else. It is enough to drive one perfectly frantic. Of course, I admit the faults were on my side, but I must say that I think that Brother John's coldness to me is particularly painful. I expected a more enthusiastic welcome, especially considering it is the first time I have come here. Uncle Jack, if you don't shake hands with Ernest, I will never forgive you. Never forgive me? Never, never, never. Well, this is the last time I shall ever do it. It's pleasant, is it not, to see so perfect a reconciliation? I think we might leave the two brothers together. Cecily, you will come with us. Certainly, Miss Prism. My little task of reconciliation is over. You have done a beautiful action today, dear child. We must not be premature in our judgments. I feel very happy. You, young scoundrel, Algy. You must get out of this place as soon as possible. I don't allow any bunbering here. I have put Mr. Ernest's things in the room next to yours, sir. I suppose that is all right. What? Mr. Ernest's luggage, sir. I have unpacked it and put it in the room next to your own. His luggage? Yes, sir. Three portmanteaus, a dressing case, two pack boxes, and a large luncheon basket. I'm afraid I can't stay more than a week this time. Merriman, order the dog cart at once. Mr. Ernest has been suddenly called back to town. Yes, sir.
What a fearful liar you are, Jack. I have not been called back to town at all. Yes, you have. I haven't heard anyone call me. Your duty as a gentleman calls you back. My duty as a gentleman has never interfered with my pleasures in the smallest degree. I can quite understand that. Cecily is a darling. You are not to talk of Miss Cardew like that. I don't like it. Well, I don't like your clothes. <laughs> you look perfectly ridiculous in them. Why on earth don't you go up and change? It's perfectly childish to be in deep mourning for a man who is actually staying for a whole week with you in your house as a guest. I call it grotesque. You are certainly not staying with me for a whole week as a guest or anything else. You have got to leave by the 4-5 train. I certainly won't leave so long as you are in mourning. It would be most unfriendly. Uh, if I were in mourning, you would stay with me, I suppose. I should think it very unkind if you didn't. Well, will you go if I change my clothes? Oh, yes, if you are not too long. <laughs> I never saw anybody take so long to dress and with such little results. Well, at any rate, that is better than being always overdressed as you are. If I am occasionally a little overdressed, I make up for it by being always immensely overeducated. Your vanity is ridiculous. Your conduct, an outrage, and your presence in my garden, utterly absurd. However, you have got to catch the four or five, and I hope you will have a pleasant journey back to town. This bunbring, as you call it, has not been a great success for you. I think it has been a great success. I'm in love with Cecily, and that is everything. Oh, I merely came back to water the roses. I thought you were with Uncle Jack. He's gone to fetch the dog cart for me. Oh, is he going to take you for a nice drive? He's going to send me away. Then we have got to part? I'm afraid so. Oh, it's a very painful parting. It is always painful to part from people whom one has known for a very brief space of time. The absence of old friends one can endure with equanimity. But even a momentary separation from anyone to whom one has just been introduced is almost an unbearable. Thank you. The dog cart is at the door, sir. It can wait, Marilyn, for five minutes? Yes, ma'am. I hope, Cecily, I shall not offend you if I state quite openly that you seem to me to be in every way the visible personification of absolute perfection. I think your frankness does you great credit, Ernest. If you will allow me, I will copy your remarks into my diary. Do you really keep a diary? Uh, I give anything to look at it. May I? Oh, no. You see, it is simply a very young girl's record of her own thoughts and impressions and consequently meant for publication. When it appears in volume form, I hope you'll order a copy. But pray, Ernest, don't stop. I delight in taking down from dictation. I have reached absolute perfection. You can go on. I'm quite ready for more. <clears throat> oh, don't cough, Ernest. When one is dictating, one should speak fluently and not cough. Besides, I don't know how to spell cough. 
Cecily, ever since I first looked upon your wonderful and incomparable beauty, I have dared to love you wildly, passionately, devotedly, hopelessly. I don't think that you should tell me that you love me wildly, passionately, devotedly, hopelessly. Hopelessly doesn't make much sense, does it? Cecily! The dog cart is waiting, sir. Tell it to come round next week, uh, at the same hour. Yes, sir. Uncle Jack would be very much annoyed if he knew that you were staying on till next week, at the same hour. Oh, I don't care about Jack. I don't care for anybody in the whole world but you. I love Cecily. You will marry me, won't you? You silly boy. Of course. <laughs> Why, we've been engaged for the last three months. Three months? Yes. It will be exactly three months on Thursday. But how... how did we become engaged? Well, ever since dear Uncle Jack first confessed to us that he had a younger brother who was very wicked and bad, you, of course, have formed the chief topic of conversation between myself and Miss Prism. And, of course, a man who is much talked about is always very attractive. One feels there must be something in him after all. I dare say it was foolish of me, but I fell in love with you, Ernest. Darling, and when was engagement actually settled? On the 14th of February last. Worn out by your entire ignorance of my existence, I determined to end the matter one way or another. And after a long struggle with myself, I accepted you under this dear old tree here. The next day, I bought this little ring in your name, and this is the little bangle with the true lover's knot I promised you always to wear. Did I give you this? It's very pretty, isn't it? Yes, you've wonderfully good taste, Ernest. It's the excuse I've always given for you leading such a bad life. And this is the box which I keep all of your dear letters. My letters? Uh, but my own sweet Sicily, I have never written you any letters. You need hardly to remind me of that, Ernest. I remember only too well that I was forced to write your letters for you. I wrote always, three times a week, and sometimes oftener. Oh, do let me read them, Cecily. Oh, I couldn't, possibly. They would make you far too conceited. The three you wrote me after I had broken off the engagement are so beautiful and so badly spelled that even now I can hardly read them without crying. But was our engagement ever broken off? Of course it was. On the 22nd of last March. You can see the entry if you like. Today I broke off my engagement with Ernest. I feel it is better to do so. The weather still continues charming. But why on earth did you break it off? What had I done? I had done nothing at all. Uh, Cecily, I am very much hurt indeed to hear you broke it off, particularly when the weather was so charming. It would hardly have been a really serious engagement if it hadn't been broken off at least once. But I forgave you before the week was out. What a perfect angel you are, Cecily. You dear romantic boy. Oh. I hope your hair curls naturally. Does it? Oh, yes, darling. With a little help from others. <laughs> I'm so glad. Oh, you'll never break off our engagement again, Cecily. I don't think I could break it off now that I've actually met you. Besides, of course, there is the question of your name. Yes, of course. You must not laugh at me, darling, but 
It has always been a girlish dream of mine to love someone whose name was Ernest. There is something in that name that seems to inspire absolute confidence. I pity any poor married woman whose husband is not called Ernest. But, my dear, uh, do you mean to say you could not love me if I had uh, some other name? But what name? Oh, any name you like. Uh, Algernon, for instance. <laughs> but I don't like the name Algernon. Well, my own uh, dear, sweet, uh, loving little darling, I really can't see why you object to such a name of Algernon. It is not a bad name. Half of the chaps who go into bankruptcy court are called Algernon. But, uh, but seriously, Cecily, if my name was Algy, uh, couldn't you love me? I might respect you, Ernest. I might admire your character. But I fear that I should not be able to give you my undivided attention. <clears throat> Cecily, your rector here is, I suppose, uh, thoroughly experienced in the practice of all the rites and ceremonials of the church? Oh, yes. Dr. Chausable is a most learned man. He has never written a single book, so you can imagine how much he knows. I must see him at once on a most important christening. I, I mean, on a most important business. Oh! I, I shall not be away more than half an hour. Considering we've been engaged since February the 14th, and that I only met you today for the first time, I think it is rather hard that you should leave me for so long a period as half an hour. Couldn't you make it 20 minutes? I'll be back in no time. What an impetuous boy he is. I like his hair so much. I must enter his proposal in my diary. A Miss Fairfax has just called to see Mr. Worthing on very important business. Miss Fairfax states. Isn't Mr. Worthing in his library? Mr. Worthing went over in the direction of the rectory some time ago. Pray ask the lady to come out here. Mr. Worthing is sure to be back soon, and you can bring tea. Yes, miss. Miss Fairfax, I suppose one of the many good elderly women who are associated with Uncle Jack and some of his philanthropic work in London. I don't quite like women who are interested in philanthropic work. I think it is quite forward of them. Miss Fairfax. Pray, let me introduce myself to you. My name is Cecily Cardew. Cecily Cardew? What a very sweet name. Something tells me we are going to be great friends. I like you already more than I can say. My first impressions of people are never wrong. How nice of you to like me so much after we have only known each other such a comparatively short time. Pray, sit down. I may call you Cecily, may I not? With pleasure. And you will always call me Gwendolyn, won't you? If you wish. Then it is all quite settled, is it not? I hope so. Perhaps this might be a favourable opportunity for my mentioning who I am. My father is Lord Bracknell. You have never heard of Papa, I suppose? I don't think so. Outside the family circle, Papa, I'm glad to say, is entirely unknown. I think that is quite as it should be. The home seems to me to be the proper sphere for the man. And certainly once a man begins to neglect his domestic duties, he becomes painfully effeminate, does he not? And I don't like that. It makes men so very attractive. 
Cecily, Mama, whose views on education are remarkably strict, has brought me up to be extremely short-sighted. It is part of her system. So do you mind my looking at you through my glasses? Oh, not at all, Gwendolyn. I'm very fond of being looked at. You are here on a short visit, I suppose. Oh, no. I live here. Really? Your mother, no doubt, or some female relative of advanced years, resides here also? Oh, no. I have no mother, nor, in fact, any relations. Indeed. My dear guardian, with the assistance of Miss Prism, has the arduous task of looking after me. Your guardian? Yes. I am Mr. Worthing's ward. Oh. It is strange. He never mentioned to me that he had a ward. <laughs> How secretive of him. He grows more interesting hourly. I'm not sure, however, that the news inspires me with feelings of unmixed delight. I'm very fond of you, Cecily. I've liked you ever since I met you. But I'm bound to state that now that I know you are Mr. Worthing's ward, I cannot help expressing a wish that you were, well, just a little older than you seem to be, and not quite so very alluring in appearance. In fact, if I may speak candidly... Pray do. I think that whenever one has anything unpleasant to say, one should always be quite candid. Well... To speak with perfect candor, Cecily, I wish that you were fully 42 and more than usually plain for your age. Ernest has a strong, upright nature. He is the very soul of truth and honor. Disloyalty would be as impossible to him as deception. But even men of the noblest possible moral character are extremely susceptible to the influence of the physical charms of others. Modern, no less than ancient history, supplies us with many most painful examples of what I refer to. If it were not so, indeed, history would be quite unreadable. I beg your pardon, Gwendolyn. Did you say Ernest? Yes. Oh, but it is not Mr. Ernest Worthing who is my guardian. It is his brother, his elder brother. Ernest never mentioned to me that he had a brother. I am sorry to say they have not been on good terms for a long time. Ah, that accounts for it. And now that I think of it, I've never heard any man mention his brother. The subject seems distasteful to most men. Cecily, you have lifted a load from my mind. I was growing almost anxious. It would have been terrible if any cloud came across a friendship like ours, would it not? Of course, you are quite, quite sure that it is not Mr. Ernest Worthing who is your guardian. Quite sure. In fact, I am going to be his... I beg your pardon. Dearest Gwendolyn, there is no reason why I should make a secret of it to you. Our little county newspaper is sure to chronicle the fact next week. Mr. Ernest Worthing and I are engaged to be married. My darling Cecily, I think there must be some slight error. Mr. Ernest Worthing is engaged to me. The announcement will appear in the Morning Post on Saturday at the latest. You must be under some misconception. Ernest proposed to me exactly ten minutes ago. It is certainly very curious, for he asked me to be his wife yesterday afternoon at 5.30. If you would care to verify the incident, pray do so. I never travel without my diary. One should always have something sensational to read on the train. I am so sorry, dear Cecily, if there is any disappointment to you, but I am afraid I have the prior claim. It would distress me more than I can tell you, dear Gwendolyn, if it has caused you any mental or physical anguish. 
but I feel bound to point out that since Ernest proposed to you, he has clearly changed his mind. If the poor fellow has been entrapped into any foolish promise, I shall consider it my duty to rescue him at once, and with a firm hand. Whatever unfortunate entanglement my dear boy may have gotten into, I will never reproach him with it when we are married. Do you allude to me, Miss Cardew, as an entanglement? You are presumptuous. On an occasion of this kind, it becomes more than a moral duty to speak one's mind. It becomes a pleasure. Do you suggest, Miss Fairfax, that I entrapped Ernest into an engagement? How dare you? This is no time for wearing the shallow mask of manners. When I see a spade, I call it a spade. I am glad to say that I have never seen a spade. It is obvious that our social spheres have been widely different. Shall I lay the tea here as usual, miss? Yes, as usual. Are there many interesting walks in the vicinity, Miss Cardew? Oh, yes. A great many. From the top of one of the hills quite close, one can see five counties. Five counties? <laughs> I don't think I should like that. I hate crowds. I suppose that's why you live in town. Quite a well-kept garden this is, Miss Cardew. So glad you like it, Miss Fairfax. I had no idea there were any flowers in the country. Oh, flowers are as common here, Miss Fairfax, as people are in London. Personally, I cannot understand how anybody manages to exist in the country, if anybody who is anybody does. The country always bores me to death. Ah, this is what the newspapers call agricultural depression, is it not? I believe the aristocracy are suffering very much from it just at present. It is almost an epidemic amongst them, I've been told. May I offer you some tea, Miss Fairfax? Thank you. Detestable girl, but I require tea. Sugar? No, thank you. Sugar is not fashionable anymore. Cake or bread and butter? Bread and butter, please. Cake is rarely seen at the best houses nowadays. Hand that to Miss Fairfax. Your tea, miss. You have filled my tea with lumps of sugar. And though I asked most distinctly for bread and butter, you have given me cake. I am known for the gentleness of my disposition and for the extraordinary sweetness of my nature. But I warn you, Miss Cardew, you may go too far. To save my poor, innocent, trusting boy from the machinations of any other girl, there are no lengths to which I would not go. From the moment I saw you, I distrusted you. I felt that you were false and deceitful. I am never deceived in such matters. My first impressions of people are invariably right. It seems to me, Miss Fairfax, that I am trespassing on your valuable time. No doubt you have many other calls of a similar character to make in the neighborhood. Ernest! My own Ernest! Gwendolyn, darling. A moment. May I ask, are you engaged to be married to this young lady? To dear little Cecily? Of course not. What could have put such an idea into your pretty little head? Thank you. You may kiss me. I knew there must be some misunderstanding, Miss Fairfax. The gentleman whose arm is at present round your waist is my guardian, Mr. John Worthing. I beg your pardon? This is Uncle Jack. Jack? Oh. Here is Ernest. My own love. 
A moment, Ernest. May I ask you, are you engaged to be married to this young lady? Uh, to what young lady? Oh, good heavens! Oh, Gwendolyn! Yes, to good heavens, Gwendolyn. I, I mean to Gwendolyn. Of course not! <laughs> what could have put such an idea into your pretty little head? Thank you. You may kiss me. I felt there was some slight error, Miss Cardew. The gentleman who is now embracing you is my cousin, Mr. Algernon Moncrief. Algernon Moncrief? Oh! Are you called Algernon? I cannot deny it. Is your name really John? I could deny it if I liked. I could deny anything if I liked. But my name certainly is John. It has been John for years. A gross deception has been practiced on both of us. My poor wounded Cecily. My sweet wronged Gwendolen. You will call me sister, will you not? There is just one question I would like to be allowed to ask my guardian. An admirable idea. Mr. Worthing, there is just one question I would like to be permitted to put to you. Where is your brother Ernest? We are both engaged to be married to your brother Ernest, so it is a matter of some importance to us to know where your brother Ernest is at present. Cecily, it is very painful for me to be forced to speak the truth. It is the first time in my life that I have ever been reduced to such a painful position, and I am really quite inexperienced in doing anything of the kind. However, I will tell you quite frankly that I have no brother, Ernest. I have no brother at all. I never had a brother in my life, and I certainly have not the smallest intention of ever having one in the future. No brother at all? None. Had you never a brother of any kind? Never. Not even of any kind. I'm afraid it is quite clear, Cecily, that neither of us is engaged to be married to anyone. It is not a very pleasant position for a young girl to suddenly find herself in, is it? Let us go into the house. They will hardly venture to come after us there. No, men are so cowardly, aren't they? This ghastly state of things is what you call bunburying, I suppose. Yes, and a perfectly wonderful Bunbury it is. The most wonderful Bunbury I have ever had in my life. Well, you've no right whatsoever to Bunbury here. That is absurd. One has a right to Bunbury anywhere one chooses. Every serious Bunburyist knows that. Serious Bunburyist. Good heavens. Well, well, one must be serious about something if one wants to have any amusement in life. I happen to be serious about bunburying. What on earth are you serious about? I haven't got the remotest idea. About everything? I should fancy? Oh, you should have had an absolutely trivial nature. Well, the only small satisfaction I have in the whole of this wretched business is that your friend Bunbury is quite exploded. You won't be able to run down to the country quite so often as you used to, dear Algy. And a very good thing, too. Your brother is a little off colour, isn't he, dear Jack? You won't be able to disappear to London quite so frequently as your wicked custom was. And not a bad thing, either. As for your conduct toward Miss Cardew, I must say that your taking in a sweet, simple, innocent girl like that is quite inexcusable. 
to say nothing of the fact that she is my ward. I can see no possible defense at all for your deceiving a brilliant, clever, thoroughly experienced young lady like Miss Fairfax. To, to say nothing of the fact that she is my cousin. I wanted to be engaged to Gwendolyn, that is all. I love her. Well, I simply wanted to be engaged to Sicily. I adore her. There is certainly no chance of your marrying Miss Cardew. I don't think there is much likelihood, Jack, of you and Miss Fairfax being united. Well, that is no business of yours. Well, if it was my business, I wouldn't talk about it. It is very vulgar to talk about one's business. Only people like stockbrokers do that. And then merely at dinner parties. How can you sit there, calmly eating muffins, when we are in this horrible trouble I can't make out? You seem to me to be perfectly heartless. Well, I can't eat muffins in an agitated manner. The butter would probably get on my cuffs. One should always eat muffins quite calmly. It's the only way to eat them. I say it's perfectly heartless you're eating muffins at all under the circumstances. Well, I'm in trouble. Eating is the only thing that consoles me. Indeed, when I'm in really great trouble, as anyone who knows me intimately will tell you, I refuse everything except food and drink. At the present moment, I'm eating muffins because I am unhappy. Besides, I am particularly fond of muffins. Well, that is no reason why you should eat them all in that greedy way. I wish you would have some tea cake instead. I don't like tea cake. Good heavens, I suppose a man may eat his own muffins in his own garden. But you have just said it was perfectly heartless to eat muffins. I said it was perfectly heartless of you. Under the circumstances, that is a very different thing. That may be, but the muffins are the same. Algy, I wish to goodness you would go. You can't possibly ask me to go without having some dinner. It's absurd. I never go anywhere without dinner, and no one ever does, except vegetarians and people like that. Besides, I have just made arrangements with Dr. Chasuble to be christened at a quarter to six under the name of Ernest. My dear fellow, the sooner you give up that nonsense, the better. I made arrangements this morning with Dr. Chasuble to be christened myself at 5.30, and I naturally will take the name of Ernest. Gwendolyn would wish it. We can't both be christened Ernest. It's absurd. Besides, I have a perfect right to be christened if I like. There is no evidence at all that I have ever been christened by anybody. I should think it extremely probable I never was, and so does Dr. Chasuble. It is entirely different in your case. You have been christened already. Yes, but I have not been christened for years. Yes, but you have been christened. That is the important thing. Quite so. So I know my constitution can stand it. If you are not quite sure about ever having been christened, I must say I think it's rather dangerous you're venturing out it now. It might make you very unwell. You can hardly have forgotten that someone very closely connected with you was very nearly carried off this week in Paris by a severe chill. Yes, but you said yourself that a severe chill was not hereditary. It usedn't to be, I know. But I dare say it is now. Science is always making wonderful improvements in things. Oh, that is nonsense. You are always talking nonsense. 
Jack, you are at the muffins again. Oh, I wish you wouldn't. They're the only two left. I told you I was particularly fond of muffins. But I hate tea cake. Why on earth, then, do you allow tea cake to be served up for your guests? What ideas you have of hospitality. Algernon, I have already told you to go. I don't want you here. Why don't you go? Well, I haven't quite finished my tea yet. And there is still one muffin left. Directed and edited by Frida Matea. Sound design and effects by Graydon Gund. Music by Danny K. Bernstein. Starring Sally Yur as narrator. Chris Hendricks as Algernon Montcrief. Montgomery Morrow as Lane, Kevin Sebastian as Jack Worthing, Devon Yates as Lady Bracknell, Roxy York as Miss Gwendolyn Fairfax, Alexandra Kopko as Miss Prism, Margie Zarcone as Miss Cecily Cardew, William Burns as Reverend Canon Chasuble, and Enrique Willie as Merriman. We hope you enjoyed this act of the importance of being earnest. To hear how the play ends, don't forget to subscribe.